Welcome to a whole new season of this podcast and welcome to the very first episode of the reboot. This is now Pen and Quill and this is going to be so fantastic. And I figured what better way to kick off this whole new season and really this whole new outlook on the podcast and outlook in the future with having a sort of monster mash. It is October 2021. This is actually uh, the first full week of October. And if you follow me on Instagram, you probably noticed there's been a really fun little poll. I wanted to know, what do you guys want to talk about? What do you guys want to hear about when it comes to uh, the traditional monsters and sort of mayhem that we associate with Halloween? And a lot of people voted for witches. So I'm like, you know what? Let's do that. Let's talk about witches. And I'm going to throw in cats with that as well. Because witches and black cats tend to go together. And there's an actual historical reason as to why. So we are going to talk today about magic, mayhem, witchcraft, and those cute little kitties that are suddenly very popular in photos because they are just so adorable. But they have long held a stigma is why you see them on Halloween. You're listening to the Pen and Quilled Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Aubrakit, and together we are going to go do a deep dive into elements of storytelling, talk about themes that you may have read about in some of your favorite novels or seen in some of your favorite films. What we do as writers, what we do as authors, what we do as storytellers has a deep impact on our culture and is also deeply impacted by our culture. listening to this and it is the Halloween season. Maybe it's September, maybe it's even August. It's probably definitely October, <laughs> especially if you're subscribed. And if you're not, you should be. You probably noticed around the, oh gosh, Walgreens, Target, Walmart, you know, all the stores everywhere, even in just like general walking spaces, uh, people putting up decorations, getting ready for that fun night where we hand out candy and dress up in, a, in our fun best costumes uh, witches feature prominently in the decor and typically the theme is is pretty standard pointy hats brooms fun shoes uh, i say fun as in pointed sometimes pointed and curled uh, one of my favorite witch decors the uh, i don't know if you've seen the the witch where you actually just kind of wrap her around a pole or a tree and it looks like she kind of flew into it that's hilarious i love it uh, but you see, you know what I'm talking about. There's the, sp the striped socks, uh, and basically, no matter what color, um, even like with the Disney movie Hocus Pocus, um, Wizard of Oz, the the Wicked Witch of the West, all these scenes, they all bear a similar theme to how they're depicted. And it's the pointy hat, it's the dresses, the pointy shoes, it's the brooms. Usually they have a cauldron that is bubbly, you know, bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, and, and then the, the black cat. All of this holds significant historical uh, memory to it. But I want to rewind for a moment too here, not just talking about why witches are um, kind of depicted like this today in, in modern American society at least, but also what the term witch even refers to. Now, I do want to preface this, and I also want to make this statement for all the Monster Mash episodes that are coming out this month. There is so much, there's so much in academia that discusses these topics. And I just don't have that kind of time. <laughs> and also, I don't have all the textbooks with me that I wish I had with me currently. I did not bring with th them with me when I moved to Chicago. Sad day, they are in storage. And I should have grabbed them before... But I, I didn't even think about that. I actually have, oh gosh, I don't know how many textbooks from my studies um, in anthropology, getting my degree in that. I actually focused on religion, magic, and witchcraft. Wanted to know more about that. 
I want to also give a hats off to the University of Northern Iowa, specifically Dr. Ann Woodrick. And then another episode, I'll name a couple more professors. But I'm pointing out Dr. Woodrick because she taught this class. She actually is the one who introduced all these concepts I'm going to share with you today to me and, and gave me some really good reading material in the course that she teaches, of course, or she at least I when I was there, she taught a course called Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft. And we really dived deep into what is witchcraft, what makes a witch, and all the interesting political and um, social constructs, I should say, that go into defining what a witch even is in the past as well as today. So to get a better understanding of what's going on today, I want to recap again, what amounts to decades and decades of research. So the resources I'm going to share with you today are really just great articles I found online that summarize in an easy to digest pieces, the research that I actually have entire tomes, if you will, of of what goes into this. So first and foremost, let's talk about witchcraft itself, because in order to be a witch, you have to be a practitioner of witchcraft. What is very, very interesting is what we commonly attribute to being a witch, especially when you're looking at the European definition. Why European? Because that's what was brought over to the North American continent with the European colonization. And it's very important to specify that because uh, First Nations, each nation has their own different definition of witchcraft and and what makes a witch. A really good example is the Navajo and I think even the Hopi and the Zuni fall into this. But I do remember it was the Navajo Nation in the American Southwest. Uh, their definition of witch and what qualifies as a witch is vastly different from what we know in the Halloween concept. I will say, too, if you're very interested in that, it's actually quite terrifying. I personally find that the Southwest uh, First Nations ideas of what a witch is and what that entails is a thousand times more terrifying than your standard Halloween, which I actually feel like there should be some pretty good Hollywood films on this that they just haven't quite gone into. Um, so take a look into that just on the side. If I find the the right uh, websites, I'll put them in the in the show notes. It's it's terrifying. It, it's quite scary. So that's why I'm focused on the European side. One, it's just I I don't want to scare you. And two, (laughs) what we're talking about in context of Halloween is absolutely in the context of of European influence. And yes, we are going to talk about Salem, Oregon. Um, Oh my gosh, not Salem, Oregon. Um, Salem, Massachusetts. Wow. And I'm keeping that in there because it's important for you to know that I am human and I make mistakes. Salem, Massachusetts does play a big part in this for obvious reasons. But let's rewind again and go back to Europe. A couple things happened in Europe culturally. And I should maybe I should say that these things are more about two different industries, medicine and brewing. Both of these have strong impact on what we identify as a witch as far as costumes and also just representation in, in current media. Uh, so medicine first, witches tended to be female doctors. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) Um, And you'll actually, if you go back to ancient Greece, Athens actually had quite a few issues with this, where there was a time where it was punishable by death for women to practice medicine. But there were also, uh, there was was a time when, uh, because of this law, there was a high account of infant mortality and women dying in childbirth. It was was becoming quite a pandemic, to be perfectly honest. And one physician in particular, Agnodice, Agnodice, she was someone who brought this issue to light. She was a woman who lived in in ancient Athens and recognized this horrible horrible, uh, atrocity that was happening to the female population. Because let's be honest, guys, I love you. Like, you're great. I'm sure we all love you too. Like, we need you. You're important to the human you know, genome as much as, you know, our life. I love my guy. I know my sister loves her. We all, we love the men in our lives. 
but as, as I have to agree with current political and, and kind of sociopolitical stances. There's a lot of gaps between what men think women should do with their bodies and what women know needs to be done with their bodies, okay? And I'm just going to leave it at that. You can have whatever discussion you want to have about uh, women's rights, especially to cost their bodies today and the luxury taxes on certain uh, products that <laughs> we need. Otherwise, it gets very uh, uncomfortable for the for all of us, for just like the planet in general. Um, but I can... Um, Agna DC, she saw this as a serious life-threatening issue in Athens. And so what she did is she studied medicine in secret under a, a physician who agreed with her. He was like, yeah, no, this is definitely an issue. And then she disguised herself as a man and became legally became a physician because nobody recognized that this was actually a woman. She saved so many lives. And when she was discovered, when she was found out that, that she was a woman, disguised as a man practicing medicine they were actually planning to put her to death they were going to execute her for not only breaking the law but just lying to athens as a whole her life was spared because she pointed out that during her residency during her time as a physician working with pregnant women being there in childbirth she's like you have your wife you have your children you have your grandchildren because of me so if you execute me this is the risk that you're posing on your families. Are you really going to take my life when I've given you your entire family's worth? They spared her. <laughs> this happened in the BC days. This happened way back in the classical era as we identify eras and places. This sort of mindset that women have no place in medicine was translated over into Europe. And you could really follow this with the Roman trade routes as well as the Roman occupations. You see a lot of these sort of uh, ideas and social constructs taken into ancient Europe. Ancient Europe was a whole series of tribes and a whole series of vastly different social structures and, con and contracts and understandings and, and really vastly different ways of living that were deeply altered by Roman occupation. So what comes out of Europe in the centuries later and gets brought to America and turned into the problems we're having today, it is not because someone happens to be German. It is not because someone has to be British or Scottish. It's like never because of Scottish and I'm biased and I'll fight on that. <laughs> but you know, like, it's not just because they're pale and happen to be on the far end of the Northern Hemisphere. No, it has a it has a lot of roots back into the Roman occupancy. The Romans bringing these over. The Romans shared this with the Greeks. Like there's a lot of trade happening there. Culture gets shared so much and imbues so much. So that's why I wanted to start with, with ancient Greece. When you have these ideas of oh, women don't have place in medicine. What, what does that have to do with witchcraft? Well, when you're going in the centuries after the Roman occupation, after Rome as an empire pulled out, but a lot of, there's a lot of people who did remain. It was just easier that way. You have a lot of ideas blending in, a lot of the tribes detribing, so to speak, and, and unifying under different, um, again, socioeconomic constructs. You go from tribal systems to, um, or like fiefdoms and then you have kingdoms and then you have some democracies and republics start to form like it, it's all evolving but some things stayed the same and one of those was women don't really have a place in medicine except there are women who definitely did have places in medicine and that sort of standing up for themselves like yes i'm still going to practice medicine whether you want me to or not has its roots in the tribal systems that existed long before the Romans came. So when we have met women practicing medicine in Europe and it's going against this idea of like, you know, they don't have a place in there, they're bringing with them through their families, through you know, mother to daughter, mother to daughter, grandmother to daughter, aunt to niece, you know, all the, through the women, these uh, ancient practices of medicine that absolutely worked. Because here's the thing, it utilized the local herbs it utilized the local idea of flora and fauna you know 
that if you don't want your breath to smell so bad, you need to chew on this plant, which, you know, mint. If you want to appease your cat, you give them catnip. Fun fact, catnip and mint are from the same family. So your mint plant and your catnip plant are equally going to get your cat going crazy. I learned that because of Quill. <laughs> um, but no, like women in, in Europe, especially women who, who kind of held on to these ancient traditions, despite the Roman occupation, despite everything happening later, they still practice medicine. They still save lives. And this really, really rubbed against the male practitioners because of really what what makes anything rough it's not just about pride and you know i am mad <laughs> um it's also about money these women are getting paid and when they're doing it better than the physicians because to be a physician you have to be a man but to just practice medicine i mean anybody technically could do that in this time so in this time anybody could really do that as long as they do it well and these women were doing it exceptionally well because they we're not only familiar with what is available locally, but they also knew how to mesh things together. They were better scientists, to be perfectly honest, better scientists and better biologists. And you could kind of sort of say anthropologists because they studied humans. They studied how the body works. Um, then these men who went to more politically run institutions and learned basics. What happened? in northern europe during these struggle bus times is that the men got very very aggressive towards the women they did not like that the women were outperforming them in medicine and so when a woman especially when a woman who has been socially ostracized for whatever reason typically is a widower you know typically her husband is dead typically she probably lives in the woods because she's closer to her supplies it really is she just it's her natural pharmacy uh, so she's not really in town so much because she needs to be near her her natural pharmacy uh, so she is she doesn't have a, a male presence in her household to protect her she lives on her own and she's really heckin good at what she does you know what i mean like if someone goes to her with an ailment she knows the, the proper medicine for it gives it to them it works they go home <laughs> And it works better than the local male doctors. Yeah, that created a lot of stigma. And, and so there'd be these smear campaigns that would happen that the male doctors would would spread and they would create these stories of like, oh no, that's not like physically possible. She's, she's in lieu with Satan because there's absolutely no way that that plant can get rid of your migraine. Even though today we've confirmed there's a lot of things. Um, comfrey is, is also called knit bone. Comes from actually the Roman occupation in Britain because they find out this plant literally can help mend your muscles. I've used it myself when I tore a bunch of ligaments in my arm one time. I put the comfrey cream on and instead of getting carpal tunnel for the rest of my life, I endured the pain for like three days. It was done. It went back. I kid you not. Comfrey cream. Look it up. It's phenomenal. It feels and smells like Bengay. You slap it on, it heals everything. It's amazing. It's a plant. That's what it does. It's amazing. Thank heavens, you know, thank God for, for this being in nature. But there are doctors who did not like that because that meant that nobody's paying them for the constant redressing of wounds or for the constant stitches. No one's paying them for the continual subpar treatment. I have to take a moment because I realize as I'm saying this out loud, this sounds so familiar. And if it does, I'm going to guess it's because we're sitting here today thinking that sounds an awful lot like my insurance plan. <laughs> that sounds an awful lot like, you know, me and, and getting treatment. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, okay, I'm going to talk about my own injury for a hot second. A couple years ago, actually probably more than a couple years ago, gosh, I'm old. Um, I did, I actually tore lots of ligaments in my right arm and went from my fingers all the way through my wrist up to my forearm. It was swollen. Um, they did scans and everything and they couldn't find anything broken. So they said what they did gather was that I somehow I tore my ligaments. Now the, and I'm going to be honest, it was a guy, the male doctor, the, the man doctor prescribed to me a two week regimen of, I can't remember. It was like, it was like some sort of painkiller 
But he said, I probably have to take off work. I would be basically incoherent for two solid weeks. I would be bedridden for two solid weeks for my wrist, like for my, for my arm. And, and they said I was going to live with carpal tunnel for the rest of my life. Like I had done some serious damage. He said about every four weeks, there should be a flare up and you're just going to live with this. I was not okay with that. Okay. I really wasn't like, first and foremost, nobody can afford to take two weeks off. I mean, even today I work from home and I have complete control over my schedule. You still will not see me taking two weeks off. I really, I can't, there's a lot to do. And, and I just, I wasn't okay with that. But then I also wasn't okay with this idea of being stuck with carpal tunnel for the rest of my life, just in trying to stock a box of cereal. Like it was crazy. There was this holistic pharmacy. So basically they, they didn't fulfill prescriptions or anything like that. But what I did was I took my prescription list, went to this shop that is completely run by women. Okay. This is a real thing today in the 21st century went to a herbal based, holistic, non-chemically founded, you know, sort of pseudo pharmacy, handed them the list, asked them what can be done about this? Because I, I do, I, first of all, I can't afford this prescription. And second of all, I don't want to live with this for the rest of my life. What can we do? And she's like, you need comfrey cream. She got me the, she handed me the bottle. They even came with a free book to learn more about it. Um, Sorry about that wrestling. That would be cool saying, hey. <laughs> um, but anyways, no, she she gave me the comfrey cream. Um, There's even like a, a bit of a, an oil. Say what you will about essential oils. It's very relaxing. Okay, just help me de-stress. And de-stressing also help my muscles relax so they can heal. Three days later, of, of after uh, constantly applying this comfrey cream, I literally felt something just sort of happen in my arm. That was several years ago. I have never had carpal tunnel once. I even had it re-examined. Everything was stitched back together, like literally knitted back together. Knit bone, living up to his name, comfrey cream, knit bone. My whole arm, completely fine. Even today, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm looking at it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no scars. There's no swelling. I've never had an issue with pain in there ever, ever again. Today in the 21st century. So imagine what this is like centuries ago in in a world there's no social media there's no internet there's no way to cross-reference anybody's ideas or opinions so if some guy is like she's a witch and she's in league with satan because there's absolutely no way that nikki's arm can be healed that quickly that that's pure magic and she needs to burn at the stake because we can't have that infecting our society there's really no other way to defend herself from that so you'll see these happen these witch hunts are really it's it's corporate takeover. It's it's definitely all about business, money, and and there is a bit of an ego. There is a bit of a pride. There is definitely um, chauvinism happening here. So then, what happens in America? Really, really fascinating is this this idea of the unknown, and that's what it, what it was. These doctors really couldn't figure out what these women knew because they didn't want to accept that there was something outside the university, that there was something outside the politically funded institutions. And I emphasize that because at this point, even Oxford University, as ancient as it is, because it is, it goes back to the BC days, um, right where BC kind of shifts in AD. Um, those were funded by the crown. Those were funded by whoever was in charge and whoever was in charge had control over what was taught that's that's the reality of what was happening so when they don't know the answer it becomes scary and it becomes the unknown and it, it gets lobbed under magic fast forward to the puritan days in north america and there's a whole other discussion we can have about how puritanism has deeply damaged american society um and spirituality but just 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 gonna talk about the landing you know the puritans come to the northeastern coast of north america settle down here, trying to establish their life. I love how Dr. Woodrick put it, where when you think about it, you have your, you have your family, you have your home, you have your, your boundaries, you have your little fence, you have your, your cattle, your sheep, your goats and all that. But beyond the fence, there's that dark and scary looking forest line. You can see, like, let's just imagine for a moment, on the right-hand side, you have the bright blue, sunny 
coastline of the Atlantic. You cross the Atlantic. You know what's out there. And it's open. You can see from here to the horizon. That's what's there. But if you look to the left, you only know for sure up until that fence line. And beyond that is the dark, because that's how forests are. They're very dark when they're thick and dense and not torn down to build New York City. You know what I mean? Like this is this is before then. It's scary. You don't know what's out there. You don't know who's out there. She highly recommended, and I, I, I will too, highly recommend to you. If you really want to see a fantastic and very accurate portrayal of this psychology happening in the Puritan society, you have to watch the movie The Witch. Um, I'll see if I can find a link for that. I'll see, you know, like a streaming link or something I can put in the, in the show notes. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's fiction. Yeah, it does. It does kind of veer into like, oh, okay. Because I, I I haven't seen it all the way through, but I did fast forward to the ending, going to be honest. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. But the reason why it's so highly recommended by anthropologists like Dr. Woodrick and like myself is because 95% of the film is portraying and showing you what this really was like to be by yourself with a cultural concept that you've brought from Europe that the unknown, that the forest, that the things, because the people in the forest are no longer people, they're things, they're creatures in that deep dark. They have hidden knowledge, they have concealed practices, and it's terrifying. This film really does show that so well. I get chills even thinking about it. It does a phenomenal job of just showing what that was like. It's not even scary in like the jump scare sense. It's scary in like in just really emphasizing the unknown. That's how really that's really how and where that one form of witchcraft gets brought to North America. And fast forwards into the the witch hunts of Salem and the executions. Again, medicine being practiced, but also just the idea of, of ostracized women in that particular society. The, the, a lot of the victims are widowers, or then there's some women who are just, you know, there's a grudge happening. Um, and then you have cultural practices brought over with the slave trade from Africa um, to Bichua. And then you had uh, the, the Native American, you know, the First Nation medicinal practices that, especially since they're native to this area and the European settlers are not, again, hidden knowledge, hidden answers. Like if, if the European physicians don't really know about the flora, the fauna of the local region, so they don't have the best treatments for things. But the the natives do, like she said, the Iroquois of that region, they would know. So they can help heal and cure and address you know, illnesses and ailments much better and more efficiently than the European physicians who came over. Um, not only is that scary as like, okay, what do you know that I don't, but also how dare you know something I don't. You see how that works? It's it's so sad. It's, it's like, even saying that right now, it's so tragic. When you feel like, I love how my my, uh, my 10-year-old niece be like, TT, how come people just didn't talk to each other? I, I wish I had a good answer for that. Because really, just think about how much better off we may have been today if people just talked to each other. If, you know, instead of being so focused on pride and ego, if information really had been shared, let the hidden knowledge become, you know, revealed knowledge, let this, but it didn't, it didn't, because there's so much fear in, in the unknown, there's so much fear in the unfamiliar. So the Salem Witch Trials did really hammer this in, and what came out of the Salem Witch Trials was an additional layer of fear. Could I be next? You probably remember, like, even now, again, 21st century, we kind of went through this. There's been some witch hunting going on, the cancel culture. But the idea is, okay, is there something that I did that I'm going to be pulled out for that is going to destroy me in my life? So cancel culture today is, in and of itself, a witch hunt. The 21st century version of it, but it is what it is. It is a witch hunt. It has roots in Salem. I promise you, it does. It has roots in Salem because Salem and what happened in Salem, Massachusetts with those witch hunts, those very real witch hunts, uh, was so horrific. It really was. It was so horrific. So many innocent people lost their lives because of fear. 
and because of this idea of oh i found out something about you that warrants destroying you that has been deeply embedded in american society so that's the medicine side you're probably thinking right now didn't you mention something about like beer earlier yes that is where the physical depictions of witches as we know on halloween come about even like i said great film disney hocus pocus love it even though how they're dressed comes out of the brewing industry this is where i'm going to pull up some really fun articles i found online because again a lot of uh scholarly research has been done on this but i found some articles that were really fantastic that kind of covered this in a nutshell and i'll include them in the show notes if you want to read them for yourselves i am just going to quickly kind of recap what they're talking about uh, first, I loved InStyle had this great article called, uh, so there's actually a reason why witches wear pointed hats and fly on brooms. And they even uh, talk about how Hollywood has kind of cemented this in, which is really fascinating. This ironically, I love this. Ironically, the first known witch's outfit is nudity, as in like no clothes at all. And that was depicted in paintings. You also knew the notice this in the movie, The Witch. So again, gotta watch it. Um, they said, but years later, the outfit evolved due to political allegiances, Hollywood spit on these magical beings, and <laughs> sex magic. <laughs> I love how I said, yep, that's right. Uh, but again, what does that have to do with beer? They're, they're talking about, too, about like the Middle Ages, the pointed hats were actually associated with uh, the Jewish religion and, unfortunately, Satan. The two really aren't together. But again, fear and the unknown, especially when it's counterculture. You think about Europe, again, especially in the Middle Ages, the church is absolutely a political engine. It is not a spiritual engine at this point. I don't care what anybody says. How <laughs> you cannot judge Christians today on how Christianity behaved during the Middle Ages, because Christianity during the Middle Ages was a political engine. Religion and spirituality are two entirely different things. Religion is very much political and run by government. Spirituality is personal. Gotta nail that in. So when you're looking at, you know, again, witchcraft and how they're portray uh, portrayed, the pointed hats, um, when they're talking about here in this article about uh, being associated with the Jewish religion and, you know, and, uh, participation in Kabbalah rituals and things like that. When they're talking about like making deals with the devils, this is the politically run Christian thought. Again, political because the Jewish communities are counterculture. They're not living by the exact same rules that the politically operated church is forcing everybody to live under. That does not rub them well. So maybe I should throw in a third aspect at the beginning. There's definitely some uh, religious political <laughs> overtones, obviously, happening here. So then, you've, so then it goes on and saying, this is where, we, where beer comes up. In medieval, women, in medieval Europe, women who brewed beer at home also have the reputation of being witches. They're called alewives, and I love how InStyle really summarizes this. These alewives were suspected of being herbalists, which was associated with magic at that time. Remember, again, this is going back to medicine. But more importantly, they wore hats similar to the classic witch hat, which, as InStyle kind of recapped, was associated with um, the, the Judea, um, Judaism, the Kabbalah, more specifically, mysticism. And I'll make a quick note on that. There are some people in the Jewish community today who don't agree with the practice of Kabbalah. If you let me know, seriously, let me know. Drop me a line in the DMs on Instagram if you want me to go into Kabbalah, because that's kind of a cool thing. If you wanna, if you wanna know about some magic that has even, I'll, I'll be honest, even pre-Jewish roots, Kabbalah is much older than judaism is which is saying something we could talk about that but going back to this <laughs> i was like dm me let me know do you want to know more about that because that's pretty flipping cool um going back to this was saying women who brewed beer at home also had the reputation of being witches so talking about again the combination of oh my gosh you're wearing the same hats as those guys who make deals with the devil via kabbalahism um and the how dare you take my patients away from me because you're a better doctor than I am. <laughs> this is all coming together into these women brewing beer at home. Any woman who defied the patriarchal norms of the 1700s and 1800s 
were pretty much considered to be a Satan-worshipping sorceress. And since they worked in a male-dominated profession, they received a major shade. Love how InStyle puts this. Because it's true. That's recapping everything. And so now you've got beer. The Smithsonian Magazine also has a great article on this. Why did women stop dominating the beer industry? Now, they also have a big note that there are some scholars who kind of stepped in and did not agree with them. I pulled up one of their uh, recommended uh, experts, uh, beer and spirits writer Tara Nuren. Tara Nuren? Tara Nuren? Again, if I mispronounce that, let me know. I do apologize. <laughs> uh, but there's some experts who talk about this at great length. The Smithsonian, again, recap this really, really well. Beer brewing has been around for whoa, eons. It says humans have been drinking beer for almost 7,000 years. This is so true. And the original brewers were women. Absolutely. It, like I said, a long time uh, Kabbalism beer brewing is as ancient as time itself at least humanity is seven thousand years this predates everything i mean this even predates the egyptians i'm being completely honest beer brewing is another one you know they always say like um the sex industry is like you know the, the oldest profession actually beer brewing is even older than that <laughs> do you think about it you gotta get direct to get through it you know <laughs> So, yeah, the Smithsonian has a great article on this. I'll also link in the show notes. But they're talking about how some, I love how about this, some enterprising women took this household skill to the marketplace and began selling beer. Widows or unmarried women used their fermentation prowess to earn some extra money, while married women partnered with their husbands to run their beer business. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Remember what I said about female medicinal practitioners? Also, widows or otherwise unmarried women who are using their knowledge of plants to be really, really good doctors, really, really good physicians. And now we have women, the same category of women, the same group of women using this same knowledge to make one heck of a really, really good beverage so they can supplement their income and basically survive. When you think about women in the marketplace at this time, having a really tall pointy hat makes you very easy to identify. Uh, No one's going to miss that. It definitely drew attention. And the cauldron itself is what they would brew it in. That's where the cauldron comes from. It's just how they would make the beer. Um, I don't have an article on how beer is actually made, but look it up. It's really fascinating. Those who sold their beer out of stores had cats, not as demon familiars, but to keep mice away from the grain. Seriously, it's to keep mice away from the grain. That's it. And I'm looking over here at Quill, who's like, what? Um, (laughs) I'm teaching him how to hunt mice. Not because I have mice, but because it keeps him busy at night so I can sleep. (laughs) There's a a great uh, veterinarian who designed these little uh, mouse-shaped feeders. So the idea is you like fill them with your cat's favorite cat food and you teach him how to like identify that this contains food so he hunts for it while i'm sleeping and he doesn't wake me up so much at 4 a.m we're still working on it but he has started to figure out wait a minute if i play with this instead of batting my mom awake i get fed a lot faster and more efficiently yes this is a thing um but no this goes back back here in the ancient days again and i'll say ancient even if it's only like 200 years ago (laughs) Cats are valuable to these women because it kept the mice away from the grain. They needed the grain. And also, it's not just about eating the grain. It's about mice doing their business in the grain. Mice using grain for all other things. You cannot have your beverages contaminated because if people get sick from your product, they're not going to buy it and you're going to be even more of a witch, according to that society. And it's not just about losing business, it's about losing your life. So having cats around is extremely important in this industry. And also, too, I'll go with the medicine, too, that having the cats around is also, again, keeps the mice away, keeps birds away. When you think about black cats and witches, this is really what it comes down to. It comes down to just ecology. It really is. Why black cats? <laughs> have you ever tripped over your cat or have you had a friend who has a cat and you just tripped over them in general? Black cats are a lot easier to trip over. I'm so sorry. When they say, oh my gosh, a black cat crossed my path and I had bad luck. I promise you that probably came from a bunch of disgruntled men who just weren't looking. It's dark out and they tripped over a cat and they're like face planted into the mud. Okay? It is not the cat's fault. 
the cat happens to blend in with the environment it's dark out and you know how cats do when and you're know, crossing my path yeah probably rubbing rubbing your legs or just in general being in the way i love quilled pieces but we had to come to this understanding where i have to lower my bags and kind of do this process of nudging him away from the doorway when i come back from running errands because he will do his gosh darn hardest to get out and if he does that not only is he rushing me and risking tripping me all over the place but he's got to wear his harness to be out you know <laughs> so and, and he's easy to see because he's not blending okay no i'm sorry he does blend in with his environment because he's got a lighter coating that blends well with the woodwork and the carpet my gosh he does he kind of matches the carpet i have to blink a few times to find him <laughs> Cats too. Just a really quick note. Cats are also associated with the spirit world in multiple cultures. In Egypt, you'll see this a lot. And a lot of people know like Egyptians, they say Egyptians worship cats. Not really. Um, the Egyptians just really, really valued them. They were a great demeister because brewing beer was a major industry in ancient Egypt. But also, have you ever lived somewhere and had a cat and maybe this somewhere you lived was, was older. Um, like, I'll be honest, okay, the apartment I live in is in a building that is officially, as of this year, 100 years old. Things have happened here. You know what I mean? When you go to a place that has that kind of history and you have a cat. And they just sort of gaze off into the corner of the room. Or they suddenly look very hyper-focused at something in the upper corner of the room. Or just, you know, you ever, you ever see that where a cat just suddenly is paying very close attention to nothing? This was very much associated with ghosts. Even in ancient Egypt, even in ancient Sumeria, the old civilizations in the dawn of humanity. Um, quick note, uh, cats were never domesticated. Cats domesticated humans. This is true. Dogs were domesticated. Humans had to train dogs to be able to, you know, cohabitate. Cats actually came in and trained humans how to cohabitate. And this was one of those ways. Cats were would be able to identify the unseen. And so when they talk about cats being the guardians of the underworld in ancient Egypt, it's because cats could see what people can't. Even today, cats can see what people can't. It's part of their ocular science. It's, it's a fantastic. It's phenomenal. They're, they are probably seeing just fractions in light. They're probably, like, okay, Quill did this to me a couple days ago, and I'm panicked. They're like, no, I have lived so many days without a ghost experience. <laughs> I just have like those charts, like, so many days since last ghost experience, and I've had none here. Don't tell me you're seeing things that I don't see. And then I look closer and it's this tiny, tiny little fruit fly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, get that fly. Go hunt. And he did. He got the fly. We're good. And he's never done it again. But you, know, in that split second, he's so hyper-focused on something I can't see. In this case, he pointed out a couple things. Like, one, he's identifying something I obviously could not see. This tiny, tiny, really just microscopic fruit fly. Two, I'm like, how did that fruit fly get in here? Because I'm on the 18th floor. Like, they don't come up here. Oh, it's time to, time to take out the trash. I did, you know, and it was. It was perfectly time. It wasn't like it was piling up. It was just, it was time to go. Fly issue taken care of. Would I have noticed this as immediate as I did without having a cat? Probably not. So already, he's, he's paying for his rent. He's, <laughs> he's, he's paying for his, his room and keep. Um, th this is exactly what happened with women in the brewing industry. Like I said, since the dawn of humanity, cats identified us as really easily domesticated um, animals, you know, beings. So they did. And they earned their keep. They earned their rent. They, they identified these things that, w that humans just couldn't see, especially women. You know, when they're busy, they're raising families. They're also raising income. It, it gets hectic. So cats took care of that extra labor and freed up a lot of that time and also prevented a lot of infections because here's the other thing too flies tend to identify areas of infection if you've ever gone to a grocery store and there's flies hovering over one particular part of the avocado pile or one particular part of the orange pile it means there's something in there that may be rotting and if it's rotting the hormones it's releasing is affecting the produce around it the flies can smell it. They have senses just like animals, you know, like cats have senses. So if a cat is seeing a fly, the fly is seeing something that is probably going to impact your health. 
This is a chain of identification that is so vital when you are creating a consumable product, which is true today as much as it was 7,000 years ago. And then the Industrial Revolution happened. And that's where the factories came up. And, and beer becomes more massively produced. And so when you're looking at these factories and the heavy machinery and all the things that are going on, men were definitely much more likely to work in the factories that were making the mass-produced beer, which meant, again, propaganda, envy, pride, lack of knowledge, led to the stigmatization of homebrewed um, ale. If you think about today, there's a lot of stigma against some homemade things. Um, like, okay, home-baked goods. There are a lot of laws in place, not just for your health and safety, but also like a stigma to kind of deter from purchasing from people who really probably do have fantastic product but um, it's unclean because it wasn't factory made or made in like a, a major massive bakery and whatnot that's that's what's going on here so there were definitely smear campaigns that happened to pull the the brewing industry like the the consumption of beer away from microbrewery so to speak that's what a home-based brewery would be is be a microbrewery pulling away from that and going to mass production so the factories and the companies utilizing these factories would make larger profits and they would and they would portray it as a drink for men they would let their employees drink sometimes on the job it wasn't there were a lot of things that did not exist like health and safety codes <laughs> and this is true even like when you think about like pasteurization um not pasteurization but like expiration dates those did not exist until Al Capone came along in in the Great Depression in Chicago, here in Chicago. I call that guy the Robin Hood of society or America, the the, yeah, the American Robin Hood, because he stepped in and solved some of these problems too. And he did something about it. Um, but that is the Great Depression of the 1930s. All the years before, all the decades, all the centuries beforehand, there's no expiration date. There's no regulations in anything when it comes to consumable beverages and, and food. And so when problems arise there it was usually blamed on oh you probably bought that beer from that woman who like makes it in her basement down the street you should have got at the factory where we know what we're doing and that just yeah a lot of feelings about that <laughs> so when you go around halloween this year or every halloween from now on and you see you see these witches or even watch movies like Hocus Pocus and you see the pointy hats and the curled shoes and, and all and go the, uh, the brooms and the cauldron. That's where this comes from. It comes from really just man versus woman, male versus female in medicine and brewery and in industry. Um, and a really quick side note, the curled shoes come from Wizard of Oz and basically nowhere else the the concept of you know you see the decorations of the feet sticking out from the house or somewhere that's purely wizard of oz and even these articles i'll put in the show notes that i quoted from oh they they attribute wizard of oz as being that social cultural thing that cemented the idea of what a witch looks like into modern society the green skin is purely l frank Baum's envisioning of the witch for his book the green skin for which did not exist prior to this. It's purely a part of The Wizard of Oz, which is a fantastic series, by the way. I My family owns the entire like original edition. It's, it's oh my gosh, I love it so much. <laughs> I have such, I, I, oh my gosh, when, when Wicked came out, I was so mad because it got so much of the storytelling wound. Glinda is not the Witch of the North, okay? This is my other aside. So if you learn anything today, you will learn this. The Good Witch of the North in The Wizard of Oz has no name. She's never mentioned again beyond the first book. And if she is, it's in passing. No one knows where her name's in. Glinda is the good witch of the South. She's not even a witch. She's a sorceress. The wicked witch of the West also has no name. She's briefly mentioned in passing later, but she's only primarily in the first book. And then the wicked witch of the East also has them. The wicked witches just, they don't have names. The only witch who has a name that we know that like people attribute to Wizard of Oz in just classic knowledge, it's Glinda. And she's not even a witch. She's a sorceress. Later on, you'll have Mombi, you'll have others kind of pop up here and there. But I gotta clarify that since we're talking about witches. 
Glinda is not the good witch of the north. The good witch of the north has no name and Glinda isn't a witch. <laughs> Boom. Mic drop. Podcast done. <laughs> um, I hope this has been really, really fun to walk through. I hope you enjoyed uh, Quill kind of adding his little Russell Russell in. Yeah, he, he's my, my little uh, good luck charm. And yeah, you know, there are other civilizations throughout the world. Uh, Japan was one that was mentioned. Um, even parts of Europe that weren't really so far north really associate cats to be, especially black cats, to be good luck. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, today, black cats are on the rise in popularity because they look so hecking cute. And they're really beautiful, beautiful colorings on Instagram photos. You, you had to look up some Instagram accounts about black cats. These are just some stunning photos because it's that that contrast of dark and light and the way their eyes glow. Um, I like my little kitty. Um, he is part Egyptian mouth. And so I kind of liken him to those early cats. You know, he'd be my brewery cat. And he is. He, he's very much Egyptian Mao in his vocalizations and also in just his hunting prowess. He's got that, that gene in him where he's, he's ready to protect my hops from any mice who might do their business in it. <laughs> if you have any further questions, feel free to message me on Instagram. I am also going to um, look at creating a sort of video version of this. It'll be the exact same thing that we're talking about today, but adding some graphics in. I thought that'd be really, really cool. Um, if you're looking to do some further reading or research on, on this, especially, um, I didn't get to it today, but when it comes to the ancient, uh, industry of beer and brewing, actually beerandbrewing.com, how women brewsters save the world has a really great article about just how ancient this is and how women really dominated the industry up until the, you know, later European years of men being frustrating. (laughs) Um, and then also highly recommend this book, the anthropology of religion, magic, and witchcraft. This is the text, one of the textbooks that I had in my class. Okay. okay admittedly, it's a little pricey because it is technically a textbook. It's a great read though. It's very fascinating. If you're like me and you love really interesting reads where you learn something, the anthropology of magic, religion, and witchcraft, uh, pulled together by Rebecca Stein and Philip Stein. It's, it's great. I really did genuinely enjoy reading this. And that's saying a lot because sometimes academic reading is dry, drier than toast. And I hate toast. <laughs> but yeah, if you have any questions, DM me on Instagram at Nikki Auberkett. And let me know if you want to know more. I can always do updated episodes later on. I just want to do this one today um, for the Halloween season for October. And I'm looking forward to our next monster coming up soon. You've been listening to the Pen and Quill podcast. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Nikki Auberkit. I'm also on Facebook, same handle and same thing with Twitter. But if you want to be in the know about books coming out, first picks for PR boxes, contests, freebies, all the good things, do be sure to follow me there at Nikki Auberkit. And also check out my website at NikkiAuberkit.com.